Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Bruce Catton was unquestionably the most famous Civil War historian of his day. His works stimulated the interest and shaped the understanding of many of us who began reading about the war in the 1950s or 60s, but those works of his rarely appear in bibliographies of scholarly books written in the 21st century. Are today's historians and their readers missing something? The Library of America thinks so and has just issued a new one-volume edition of Catton's landmark Army of the Potomac Trilogy, introduced and annotated by Gary Gallagher. Professor Gallagher is here tonight to tell us more about Bruce Catton and why we should read him again. Join us for that and more tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not, however, speaking for the university, I am not the voice of East Carolina. And I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, nor will my guest speak for anyone else, as we always do here. It is uh, the middle of February 2023. And uh, the voice of East Carolina, as anyone who follows the Pirates know, for the last, I don't know how many years, more than I've been here, more than 20, uh, was their, their sports announcer for football and basketball, Jeff Charles, who unexpectedly... Uh, died while traveling with the team to Tulane last weekend. Uh, he was 70 years old, I believe, uh, but in good health, worked out. It was a real shock to Pirate Nation, and uh, he he would announce at the end of a Pirate victory, uh, you can paint this one purple, and uh, this week we are painting uh, one purple with a black outline for, for Jeff Charles. I never met him, although I been here two decades almost, uh, but I never heard a bad word said about him. He was he was widely admired 
uh, within the, the ECU community, and it's uh, really a loss. So, uh, and, and to go from one downer to another, uh, let me share another thought uh, here in, in February 2023. Uh, some years ago, there was an incident in Greenville where uh, a, a mentally ill person was brandishing a, a, a handgun in a parking lot, and the police were able to subdue this person. No one was hurt. But my wife happened, happened to be shopping in that area that day, and I mentioned on the show how concerned I was that you know, a crazy person could have a gun. And I got some negative email, not a lot, a little bit, not anybody who donates any serious money to the show. You can donate serious money. $5 a month would qualify. Um, no, but some people, apparently, even crazy people, they thought should have guns, and I shouldn't say anything negative about that. Well, if if, if you were one of those people, you're not listening anymore. Uh, but if they were listening, they would be unhappy to hear that I think, I still think mass shootings are a bad thing. And this past uh, weekend, there was another one at Michigan State University. Uh, you know that I'm a Michigan man, a Wolverine, uh, but tonight my sympathies are with the school that we have nicknamed Little Brother because they hate that. Uh, but tonight they really are like family, and I am uh, uh, silently bleeding a little green and white for our, our, our Spartan uh, uh, friends and colleagues. One of the victims of the shooting, in fact, was an alum of my high school, and so I will go out on that dangerous radical limb and say, I think mass shootings are a bad thing. Uh, feel free to cancel me if you disagree with that. Um, well, let me go one step further. I teach constitutional history course here at ECU, and uh, I've come to appreciate the founders pretty much meant what they said when they wrote the Constitution, uh, and they thought only one of the first ten amendments required an explanatory clause, so they carefully wrote a well-regulated militia as the purpose of the Second Amendment, so, again, I'm just saying I believe they, they meant what they said. And if, if you think the amendment should mean something else, don't write to me. Take it up with the founders because that's what they wrote. All right. Let's get more positive. Uh, here's five positive things to cheer us up on this uh, Wednesday night in, in 2023. Uh, we're still searching for a new department chair for the history department here. And I had dinner along with uh, another member of the search committee last night with one of the candidates. A funny story came out of that, but the search is still on, so I can't really talk about it yet. I'll share it with you uh, in a month or so. Uh, positive note number two, yesterday our Civil War class met. We did a role-playing exercise on the secession crisis of 1860-61, and it was brilliant. The students really performed well. They got into it, and uh, we learned something about contingency in history. Today, I got invited by the ROTC unit at ECU to go with them on their staff ride to Petersburg in April this year and serve as their historical consultant, which will be fun. And more good news. Uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned Mike Palmer's book, Lee Moves North, on the show. I think I was talking to, uh, 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 who was it, Brad Godfrey that night. And... Uh, it, 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 one thing led to another, and I got back in touch with the author, Mike Palmer, who preceded me as chair here at ECU, and uh, an old friend, and retired, and I hadn't talked to him in five years, so it was, it was good to get back in touch through, through a, because a, a uh, listener wrote a very nice email to me, uh, a, an old friend listener, 
got in touch about that, and things came together. And finally, uh, I'm sure many of you saw a great game last Sunday, um, the uh, the really exciting victory of ECU women's basketball over Wichita State. Uh, women's basketball is not my favorite sport to watch, but I will jump on any bandwagon that is moving slowly enough, and the ECU women are having a great season, so I started watching them. Uh, I did also watch the Super Bowl, which I thought was three and a half quarters of great football, and then a marginal penalty call, and all the excitement of clock management uh, to finish, but that's how it goes. The excitement of finding out who's going to be on the show next can be yours by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Next week, Rebecca Plant and Francis Clark will be our two uh, co-author guests. They have a new book about uh, boy soldiers in the Civil War that is really interesting. Uh, I, I I wasn't sure what it was going to be and started reading it, and it's great. Uh, So we'll talk with them. Then uh, March 1st, we'll be taking a two-week spring break this year, uh, teaching four classes, and serving on a search committee has just kicked my butt, and we're going to take two weeks off for spring break. So we'll come back on March 15th with new shows and keep an eye on the website for that. Let's talk with our guest tonight. We've been on rambling long enough. Uh, tonight's guest is not a stranger to you because you've read anything about the Civil War. You know the name of Gary Gallagher. And indeed, he has been on the show, as of tonight, more times than any other single guest. Uh, this will be his fifth appearance. They're always fun. Uh, Gary, are you there? Um, nice to be with you tonight, Gary. Good, good to have you back. So, uh, you have it's not a new book you've written, but a new book you, you've brought to our attention that you've, you've written the introduction for, you've written the annotations for. Uh, clearly, you're, you're the, the power behind this book coming to light. Uh, it's Bruce Catton's The Army of the Potomac Trilogy, which consists of Mr. Lincoln's Army, Glory Road, and Stillness at Appomattox. Uh, Gary, let me start at the top about this book, which is a beautiful book. Uh, how did you get three books into one volume? Is is this the whole thing? Is this an abridgment? No, it's unabridged. It, it is every word of of Catton's three volumes and includes everything that was in them as well as in the beginning of this edition. And I don't know whose idea this was. It wasn't mine, but it was a good one. Mm-hmm. They took all the maps from Catton's later centennial history of the Civil War, color maps, and put mm-hmm. them at the front of the text of the Army of the Potomac Trilogy. So that's a nice addition to this that, that wouldn't have been present. It isn't present in the earlier editions. I got a call from the Library of America about two years ago asking me if I thought that, that the Army of the Potomac Trilogy was worth reprinting mm-hmm. and uh, in one volume. And I said that I hadn't looked at Catton in ages, that I read him as a young man, and he was very important in my becoming interested in the Civil War. But that, mm-hmm. as I recalled, it certainly would be worth it. But let me go back and look at them again, and we'll chat more. And I did, and went back and was just actually quite stunned at just how well Catton holds up 70 years down the road. I, I wondered whether they, how they would get them all into, into one volume, but I think they did a beautiful job on it. And it's 1,300 pages, and, and the print is small, but... The usual Library of America, very well-bound, acid-free paper and so forth. I think they did a very nice job. 
They, they really did. It's, it's, it's got a little bookmark attached that tells people looking at you from a distance that you are a person with taste and class. Uh, <laughs> little ribbon bookmark. That's right. Exactly. It's just, you know, those maps, I have to say, I, I recall riding, uh, riding the, the commuter train into Cambridge when I was in grad school once, and there's a woman on the same train car, and she's reading the Centennial History because it had the maps that you've reproduced in here. Um, right. And, and I, I couldn't see what she was reading. But I, I, the book was open. I could see the maps on the end paper. I said, that's Bruce Catton. I was already married with a young child at that time, so I did not strike up a conversation with this strange uh, stranger, this young woman. But, you know, reading Bruce Catton, what a what a great, uh, it's, you know, yesterday was Valentine's Day. What a great way to meet people. Um, <laughs> if, if, almost, if, if I'd been, been younger and singler, I would have talked to her. Uh, and, but yeah, the maps are wonderful. They really are. Um, you said you, you read this as a, a young person. What, do you remember your introduction to Bruce Canton? I, I absolutely do. I, I got. I'm a child of the centennial. I was born in 1950, so I was I was 10 when the centennial began in April of '61. And I, what the first thing that got me interested in the Civil War was an issue of. National Geographic that anticipated the centennial came out in April of 1961. Mm. And I went from that to the American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War, which was published in 1960. It was still a new book then. Uh, and I bought a copy, 1995. Mm-hmm. This essentially wiped me out in terms of my life savings. And, and that's had, real money in 1960. That was real money then. Beautiful, beautiful book. Yes. With the narrative by Bruce Catton. So that mm-hmm. was my introduction to Catton. I fell in love with that book. Uh, I still think it's a wonderful first book for people to look at. But at any rate, I went from that to the Army of the Potomac trilogy, which my mother procured for me. It used to be offered as a bonus to people who belonged to the Book of the Month Club. It was one of the sets mm-hmm. that you could get for a dollar a piece or something like that. So that's how I got my set of Bruce Catton. I got my set in probably early 1962, I would guess, when I was 11. And I read them and was just entranced. It, it, it is fascinating how well this holds up, as, as you point out, because I think a lot of us, a lot of listeners probably recall reading Bruce Catton when they were younger. I certainly recall reading the trilogy and, and the centennial history, the uh, well, well, the one-volume illustrated history, and then the three-volume Centennial Trilogy that he also wrote, right. Uh, right. Uh, reading them more than once, in fact, and just just loving that stuff. So, um, so, so you told Library of America, yeah, this stuff holds up. Let, let's go ahead and do it. So, let's do it. And they wanted me to contribute an introduction mm-hmm. that's really a, a kind of biographical, a mini biography of Catton and Catton's writings. And then do a detailed chronology of his life, which appears at the back of the book. And then there are also just a few explanatory notes at the back of the book as well. So that, those, that's what I contributed to this. It, this isn't about me. It's about Cadden. I mm-hmm. was struck going back. In, in my memory, this was a book of kind of, these were books of very well done military narrative. Mm-hmm. And going back to them, I was really surprised to find how little of kind of set-piece battle narration there actually is in these books. Uh, they were very different from how I remembered them. And, I mean, that's what 
meant the most to me as a boy. Oh, we're talking about Antietam now. We're talking about Gettysburg right. and so forth. But Cabin does a lot more than that. And he doesn't even begin. It's not even really. It, it begins with second bull run. Yeah. That, and then that, drops uh, back and picks up McClellan. Now, there were a lot of surprises in it for me. That, that was a surprise to me also when I, I opened this and started reading. And, and as you say, it begins with second battle of bull run. And you know, everybody knows that's. Um, that's not even McClellan's battle. Uh, it, it's way after, the, way after the thing started. But likewise, in, in the Centennial History, the three-volume version, uh, I do remember that you finished the entire first volume and you're just getting to Fort Sumter. Uh, that's right. Start that's to right. the second volume. That's not true in this yep. this trilogy, of course. But 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 if, reinforcing your point, that Catton is not just a military historian; that he has a lot to say uh, about a, the context. A lot to say. I mean, I he's he's very smart about the intersection between politics and military affairs in the midst of a great war. Partly because I think that he spent the war. With the war, I mean, he was a he was in Washington as a bureaucrat during the war, dealing with the logistics and war production and so forth. Not at the top, but but close enough to the top to see what was going on. So he has a real feel for how those two worlds come together in a war and how bureaucratic infighting can spill over into other things. He's very good at that. He, he does and, see that. I, we're going to take a quick break now, but I want to come back and ask more about Bruce Canton's background because I learned a lot from your, your notes here. So we'll take a short okay. break. We're talking tonight with Gary Gallagher. He is the uh, introducer and annotator and the, the force behind the republication of Bruce Catton's Army of the Potomac Trilogy. We'll talk about Bruce Catton with Gary Gallagher. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
Tonight, our guest is Gary Gallagher, and we are uh, together communing with the spirit of Bruce Catton, author of the Army of the Potomac trilogy, among many other works. Uh, But Professor Gallagher has just helped the Library of America produce a new edition of the Army of the Potomac trilogy, uh, the three volumes, Mr. Lincoln's Army, Glory Road, and A Stillness at Appomattox, a very well-known title. Uh, so, Gary, you, you write a, a sort of mini-biography uh, in your chronology and your introduction here that tells us about uh, Catton's background. So, and, and you mentioned in the first segment he, he served in Washington, D.C. during World War II. Um, he was not, uh, what, did he have formal historical training of any kind? He, no, he was a he was a newspaper man. He was a journalist. He he was born in in the late nineteenth century. Grew up in in Michigan, surrounded by Union veterans who who were a powerful influence in his young life. He went to Oberlin twice, uh, interrupted by a short stint in the U.S. Navy during World War One. He didn't see any action. He didn't graduate from Oberlin, but he then went on to a to a career as a journalist in Cleveland and in Boston, and then eventually in Washington, D.C. So so he got his interest in the Civil War. You mentioned from those veterans he knew growing up. Um, Absolutely, yes. It, not in the original uh, edition of the trilogy, but in a reprint from the early 1960s, he says uh, at the beginning of uh, Mr. Lincoln's Army that mm-hmm. the, what led him to write these books was that he wanted to to give the men in the ranks of the Army of the Potomac their fair hearing. And, that, and, that it's, and what struck me going back through these books, another thing that I didn't remember, is that there really are about the common soldiers of the Civil War. And this is something that people didn't write about then. Bell Wiley, who's always credited, and he should be, mm-hmm. with being a pioneer in terms of the genre that looks at common soldiers, his life of Johnny Reb had come out during World War II, and he'd published Life of Billy Yank toward the end of the period when the Army of the Potomac trilogy was coming out. He mm-hmm. took a scholarly view of the common soldier, but Catton should absolutely be alongside Wiley as someone who pioneered in looking at the war from the perspective of men in the ranks uh, at least as much and perhaps more than that of the people who were commanding them. That, again, I... I knew that. I mean, when I read your, your introduction again, you pointed that out, and again, dipping into the, the trilogy here, uh, yes, Catton writes about the, the, the individual soldiers. He quotes their letters, he quotes their, their journals. Uh, he's interested in them the way, the way Wiley was. Uh, but you're absolutely right. We don't think of, of him as the pioneer in turning the focus away from, from the the, the generals with the stars to the, the men in the ranks, uh, but he certainly did it. I wonder if it's just so natural the way he writes that that we didn't notice what was happening when we were reading. It. Was that I, I think that's I think that's part of it, Jerry. And of course, it, you as, as academics, we know that people in our world don't take much notice of Catton at all because Catton right. was not. He was not an academic. He didn't have a PhD. He didn't have graduate degrees. Didn't even have an undergraduate degree, and he didn't do a lot of manuscript research at all for these books. He basically worked with the published literature as it existed then. He drew on the official records a great deal. He mm-hmm. pioneered in using Union regimentals, which is yes. a genre 
very few people had paid any attention to, and, and a lot of people now sort of deprecate as, uh, as not very useful. In fact, they can be very useful, and he was mm-hmm. the first person who really made use of, the, of that kind of evidence. So, so he, he uh, there's a story about him, and I, I don't think it was in the introduction, I think I read it elsewhere, where somebody once I asked him a question about uh, how he knew something, he quoted some, some incident, and someone said, how do you know that? And he gets a faraway look and says, I don't remember, maybe I was there. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> and of course, he, he, that's the kind of thing that drives people in our world crazy. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. not what somebody wants to hear. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think he absorbed. I think he he sort of absorbed the mid nineteenth century ethos from these veterans that he was around so much as a young man. They would have been in there. A lot of them would have been uh, in their mid fifties, mid to late fifties early 60s when he was a little boy. So there were lots mm-hmm. of them. And he and he, he says that he and his friends looked at them. These They had been there, he says. They'd been at Shiloh. Yeah. They'd been at Cold Harbor. They had been at those places that little boys and, and others at that time certainly knew about. But these people had actually been there. And it gave them this tremendous cachet uh, among, among the... The, the rest of the citizenry in these places at that time in the early 20th century. I, I was thinking of questions to ask uh, about this, and, and one was to ask if there's any uh, particular passage or phrase or, or passage that, that especially sticks out for you. And while you're thinking of that, I'll, I'll tell you the one that, that to answer my own question, uh, was one you just referred to when that introduction to the 1962 edition where he talks about these old men that he knew growing up in Michigan. And he said, after what they'd seen 1861, 1865, the rest of their lives were just waiting for death. Uh, nothing yeah. could compare yeah. to that. And, right. and that, that deeply struck me when I first read that, that, that the, the, the great moment of their lives came when they were very young. I think it was in some ways, similar to the great moment in my parents' generation's lives when they were mm-hmm. in their early 20s or even late teens was World War II. Exactly. And nothing that happened to them after that was as big an event as World War II was. Well, that was certainly true for the Civil War generation. Nothing that happened in the rest of their lives unless they lived you know, way past when most of their fellows did. Right. It even came close to what went on during the Civil War. Well, in their youths, their hearts were touched with fire, as, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said. That, that, yes, that just said very happen. memorably. Yeah. That, <laughs> no, I do have, I was struck as I went through, I mean, Catton, I think Catton is the best narrative stylist who's ever written about the Civil War. Hmm. Uh, I just would, I, that's my feeling. There have been many very talented writers. I think he's the best, and I think he occasionally tried a little too hard, strains just a little bit, but not mm-hmm. not very often. And at his best, he's just remarkable. And he also frames things in ways I would read it, and I think I had forgotten, for example, I'll mention a favorite passage in it, but mm-hmm. I had forgotten how he deals with the Gettysburg Address, for example. He sets the scene in Gettysburg on November 19th, the weather and the crowd and everything. He has Lincoln stand up and begin to read, that's the end of his coverage of the Gettysburg Address. And I thought, that, that's brilliant. <laughs> he doesn't need to quote. He doesn't need to dissect it. I mean, but who would have thought to do it that way? I wouldn't wow, like to do it no. that way. 
that way. Uh, yeah, he does the same thing at Appomattox because he's doing it from the soldier's perspective. He mm-hmm. describes Grant and his little cavalcade making their way toward the McLean family house. And you're thinking, okay, now we're going to get inside the parlor and we'll have that set piece with Lee. But no, you just see them go by and then you hear the bands begin to play and that's the end of the book. <laughs> so it's again from the soldier's perspective, not from the officer's perspective. It's just, I think it's brilliant uh, the way he uses unexpected uh, approaches in his narrative that way. I think maybe my one of my very favorite passages in this book mm-hmm. is the one in Glory Road, the second volume, that brings the Iron Brigade onto the field on the first day at Gettysburg. The, the Iron Brigade, he he deals. Uh, the Iron Brigade forms a light motif through through these volumes because they're mm-hmm. a Western. He's a Westerner from Michigan. There's there's a Michigan regiment, of course, Twenty Fourth right. Michigan in the Iron Brigade for much of its life. But when he brings them onto the field at Gettysburg, he tells the reader there are 1,800 of them, and they feel cocky. They're the 1st Brigade of the 1st Division of the 1st Corps. Goes through all of this. He, sets, mm-hmm. he, he helps you hear things and see things. The clouds, the, five, the, the band begins to play. Uh, the, the rumble of the, of the swelling battle off to the west, and off they go up the slope of Seminary Ridge into this fight. And you find out shortly thereafter the 1,200 of them are shot down that day, and it's not a great brigade uh, anymore. It's just amazingly evocative, just uh, really well done, really uh, well it, done. The, your point about him being a great stylist, I, I think it's very interesting. When I, I, I recall reading the, the uh, Centennial Trilogy the sec, uh, a second time, and I, I started reading because I remembered, oh, this is so good, I, I'm going to read it again. And this this was many decades ago, but I start reading it and thinking, no one writes like this. Uh, this is <laughs> you, you suggest he tries too hard sometime. And what it reminded me of, the analogy is, is a sort of rich uh, cream and butter nineteen fifties French cuisine. Uh, right. Just just way too rich, way too oversauced, too much of everything. Uh, I, I I can't do this. I can't read this. And then after about thirty pages, I can't stop. I just yeah, you're no, sucked in. Once you get used I, to it, I you think just can't I stop. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and I actually think that his prose is a little leaner in the Army of the Potomac trilogy than it yeah. was later. Uh, right. He he wasn't famous when he. I mean, but nobody knew who Bruce Catton was. The first two volumes sold about two thousand copies each, mm-hmm. and then when a stillness at Appomattox won the Pulitzer Prize. All of them sold better, and eventually, of course, they sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies one way or another. So he became clearly the most famous historian of the Civil War in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Not, not even, I mean, no, no right. but he even close to Catton. I mm-hmm. think his later writings become a little, I, I think they're, they're not quite as good. They're still really good. Mm-hmm. But I actually like his writing in this first trilogy the best. His Grant books, he wrote two books on Grant. He finished Lloyd Lewis's biography of Grant that takes Grant through the Civil War. He got Grant yeah. and did a great job with those books, too. But it, it, I was absolutely astonished to learn these were his, this was his first published work. Is that right? 
or close no, to it? No, he wrote his very first, he wrote one other book. He wrote one non-Civil War book. Uh, it was called The Warlords of Washington. Mm. came out in 1948, and it was about his experiences as a bureaucrat. I mean, he's talking, okay. he really drew on his experience in World War II to write that book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it fell, it, it was like a tree falling in Siberia. Nobody paid any attention <laughs> to it at all <laughs> when it came out. Uh, but he decided... I mean, he quit his journalistic career. He didn't write these books as on weekends or something. He quit mm-hmm. his career as a journalist to write the Army of the Potomac trilogy. Quite a quite a, a, a risk he took. A leap of and faith. then he, later in the fifties, he became the editor of American Heritage, which was a wonderful magazine. Uh, I subscribed to it as a boy. It came out six times a year. It was a hardcover magazine yes. of history, of American history, written by really good historians <clears throat> with no ads in them at all. And it was an attempt to get the very best history, best written history before a popular audience. So, and he certainly crosses that boundary or reaches reaches a popular audience. Um, Going back to the fact that he, he was in Washington, he was during World War II, writes a, a book, then he has the, say, the, the confidence, the, the hubris, the, the nerve to, to give up his job, <laughs> yeah. write this At about long, age 50. Yeah, it's, it's not like he's, he's you know, got a bunch of future options after that. So, yep. something that, that I thought of, again, reading these facts about his life, uh, your reference to the, the, the fact that the World War II generation, like the Civil War generation, that's what they remember, uh, you know, would remember the rest of their lives. It is maybe part of his voice that of post-war America, that, that to have the confidence to do what he did, to quit your job and go ahead and, and take this, this flyer to write this, these books. Right. And then right. to write as he does, uh, if you were an academic, you would never write this way knowing a tenure committee is going to read this book. Um, oh no! 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 You would, no! They'd be jealous of your skill. You wouldn't want to make them feel that way. Well, uh, and of course, somebody might read it, which, which would make it even worse. Yeah. Yes. That, that, I mean, James McPherson <laughs> has that anecdote about. Uh, did you don't write want this to be bestseller? known as a popularizer. Above all they, else, you don't want to be a popularizer. No, don't don't let that happen. You know, God, I hope nobody's <laughs> listening to tonight's podcast. That would be bad. Um, the. the uh, uh, my colleague, colleagues ever found out I'm talking to Gary Gallagher, I'm in trouble. But, um, but he is not, I think he's often, Jerry, I think he's mm-hmm. often sort of waved off as a kind of old-fashioned narrative military historian. And right. yeah, the buffs like him, and maybe, you know, if you've got 37 books on Gettysburg in your library, you're the kind of person who might want one of these, and you have six biographies of Lee and, and, you know, five of Grant and so forth. Mm-hmm. But he, these books are much, again, I'll, I'll say again, these books, that's not what these books are. There's so much more than that. They deal with of every aspect of soldier life, really, including desertion and um, malingering. And, I mean, he has one passage where he says he estimates that about a third of the soldiers really did most of the heavy lifting for the Army of the Potomac. A third sort of did as much as they needed to to avoid bad repercussions, and a third were worthless. Hmm. And that's, uh, that's certainly not uh, a rose-colored view of common soldiers during the Civil War. No, no. He, I mean, it really is 
uh, it, it, it certainly it inspired me to, to go back and look at this, not just for entertainment, but uh, right. uh, for the serious scholarship behind it. Uh, we have just a couple minutes for the next break, so I don't want to ask uh, this big, uh, let me ask a question now and then think about it. Okay. Um, but you mentioned his sources uh, that he used, and to what extent does he cite those sources? Is is it possible for today's academic historian to go back and use these um is, is there enough scholarly apparatus here? Can we find out? if Is he just making stuff up? Um, or, or is it the oh, 19th yes, century I think tradition? So. I, I think so. He tends, I mean, he has limited citations in the back. They're end notes. Uh-huh. Uh, limited, not, not, it's not like Douglas Southall Freeman would sometimes have three footnotes in one sentence, as you know. It's <laughs> every single fact footnote. That's not what Catton did. Right. But he gives a good sense of where he gets things. And, and his number one source was the official records. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. That's his most used source. And, of course, it's still, I mean, we all depend on the official records still. Uh, we've sure. got, you know, 127 fat volumes, uh, plus a really good index, and all the volumes are 1,000 to 1,500 pages long. That's a lot of evidence. Yeah. That's no, the I mean, thing that he used more than, than, than anything else, no question about it. Well, we'll we'll take a short break now, come back and talk more with our guest tonight, Gary Gallagher, who is the the editor, the introducer, the the moving spirit behind the republication of Bruce Catton's Army of the Potomac Trilogy. We'll talk about that when we return. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gary Gallagher. We're talking about Bruce Catton. Uh, Professor Gallagher has uh, edited, has annotated, has introduced a, a new 
one-volume publication of Catton's Army of the Potomac Trilogy. It is the complete contents of the three books are Mr. Lincoln's Army, Glory Road, and A Stillness at Appomattox, the Pulitzer Prize-winning volume. Uh, Not an uh, an adaptation or a condensation, nothing is abridged here, uh, but it all fits into one compact and uh, a physically delightful volume. It has a lovely dust jacket. It's published by Library of America, if you're familiar with their work. Uh, and, and I'm sure you've seen their, their work. You know how uh, good they look. And, uh, I mean, this book will, will be very, will not only take place on, on my shelf next to the old volumes of the trilogy that have been there for, for decades, but uh, I can see taking this with me to travel when I want to have a book. I'm, I'm not going to finish early. It's over a thousand pages with three volumes. Uh, this is a beautiful one to carry. Uh, one of the great skills that Catton had uh, was was to describe individuals, to characterize people. They, they were like characters in a novel, so that when they reappear, you remember, oh, that's the guy who does this or acts th- that way. Um, what? what how, tell me about your, your I, I agree. I couldn't agree more with that, Jerry. I think he's brilliant at presenting sort of brief biographies of critical people as the narrative moves along. None better than McClellan. I really think he gets George McClellan. And he gets both his strengths and his weaknesses. Anyone who reads these books will have a very good sense of how McClellan created this culture of caution in the Army of the Potomac, this culture that was against taking risks, against doing anything until everything was just right, uh, didn't look for a kind of knockout blow against the opponent, he does a great job of that, and then of showing, as the narrative goes on after McClellan's left the Army, how difficult it was to root that culture out of the Army. Grant didn't really complete the job until Governor Kemble Warren was removed on the field at Five Forks on April 1st, 1865. He's very good at that. He quotes uh, McClellan's letters just right, and, and then mm-hmm. he has a passage where he says all of this talk about how that McClellan had about how all the soldiers loved him, and he was the only one who could save the Union, and on and on and on. Complete lack of self-awareness on McClellan's yeah. part. But he concludes that there must be some huge doubt at the core of this man, or he wouldn't have to keep saying these things about himself, which is, of course, absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some, some really profound sense of inadequacy somewhere in McClellan that prompts him to write the way he does about himself. And, and Catton, Catton nails that. It's remarkable to me. He's (laughs) writing at a time, he did the research for these books in the very late 1940s and the very Mm -hmm. early 1950s. They came out 51, 2, and 3. So Mm -hmm. he's working with the literature. There was no common soldier literature then. There wasn't even a scholarly biography of George Gordon Meade or Ambrose E. Burnside or John Pope. None of the key commanders even had modern biographies of them. There's no literature on emancipation and African Americans. But he brings emancipation into this narrative much more than I remembered as well. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he says they, they saved, these guys saved the Union, but they left uh, unresolved the great question of what was emancipation going to mean. Well, we write about that just like that now. Now, it's, it's not the main focus of what he does, and he uses the no. terms colored troops and Negro troops as someone writing in the early 50s would, mm-hmm. but he's sensitive to that, 
in a way that I think very few people writing about military history were sensitive to it at all in the mid-20th century. No. Well, that brings up a point uh, of the environment in which he's writing. You point out these are published in the early 50s, you know, 51, 52, 53, and then comes 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, he's he writing was, about African Americans in emancipation before Brown versus Board of Education. Yes, before that, before the civil rights movement really gets going in the 1950s. Yeah, and so really, we take for granted that that's a major part of the story, but but it certainly isn't in, in the books his contemporaries are writing. Um, no, so, absolutely so, not. Yeah. Absolutely not. And wasn't even during the Civil War centennial. Well, that's what I wanted to ask uh, you about, that, that he's he's involved in the centennial, and so he's not just writing about the Civil War, he's still participating in it, in a sense. Uh, uh, t- tell us about the, the, the centennial commission. He's, he's part of the Centennial Commission. He's, he, he has his fingers in many pies, so to speak, relating to how Americans understood the Civil War. And mm-hmm. that commission, as you and I know, and as many of your listeners know as well, became controversial. It, it, they ran into problems in Charleston. They ran into problems elsewhere in the South. Uh, because it was still a segregated society at that point. And the the Civil War Centennial Commission got caught up in those kinds of things. And the people who just wanted to emphasize the two, I mean, reconciliation was a huge theme during Mm -hmm. the Centennial, but that often ran into these problems of people who were unhappy with the Confederate-centered lost cause memory of the war, which was still powerful almost everywhere. And mm-hmm. so it's, yes, he, it's, the, the centennial was a fraught period in some ways. But most people took away from the centennial a, a reconciliationist view of what was going on. I mean, that's what was pushed the hardest. And that's why it surprised me that a decade before that, he was so sensitive to some of the topics that would become uh, much more central to what scholars do 20 years down the road. I mean, there wasn't even a book, there wasn't even a book, a scholarly book, on USCT troops yet. That, that Dudley Cornish's book didn't Dudley come out Cornish, until 1956. Yeah. That's 1956, right. so there isn't even that kind of book. Uh, he, would have, he could have looked at the Black Phalanx, and he could have looked at, but those are the only things he could have looked at then. So he, it's really ahead of that curve and yet sensitive to those issues. They're not central. I don't want to overstate this too much, but he's aware of them mm-hmm. and talks about them. So it, it, what can then modern scholars take from this? I, I'm thinking, what kind of model does he offer? I mean, realistically, can anyone write something like this today? No. Uh, no, not if they want to get a job and then get tenure. They can't. Well, this could be your <laughs> third book maybe. Yeah, uh, I, I guess. Sure, it surely yeah. could not be a first book. But I think I would, having gone back and looked at this, I would consider assigning one volume uh, of this, not the whole thing, of course, to an undergraduate mm-hmm. course or, mm-hmm. uh, on the Civil War, for example, mm-hmm. and just as an example of really good writing that also gets at certain big themes that are still of interest to us. Uh, I, I would use it as a, I could use it as a common soldier book. You could use it sort of as a campaign book, although the campaigns 
I'll say one more time, are not nearly as prominent. The set piece descriptions of of uh, of campaigns and battles are much mm-hmm. less prominent in these books than I remembered. And I had been many years since I'd looked at them. Yeah, I, I guess the 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 picture that pops into my mind when I think of these books is is a line of men in blue trudging down a road. That, that's just that's the image. Great. The first that, thing. Well, that's a good. <laughs> You know, it, yes. it's not a battle. Good it's between battles. Yeah, that, that, that's what he's talking about. That's these guys, Willie and Joe of the Civil War, are his heroes. Are, are the the people that he's writing now, about? You dated yourself there, Jerry. But yes, Willie well, and Joe—that's that, well, a good well, image. That is a good image. But he's, but I mean, uh, consciously, because because that's his generation. That, that his readers yeah, know Willie yeah. and Joe intimately. It so, is. So, so it is. Yeah. The um. Well, go ahead. No, you. I, I, I think that I think that <clears throat> there are very few books <clears throat> that evoke the culture of an army as well as this one does. Uh, that's and and we and there have been lots of books on Civil War armies since since these came out, and I don't think anyone has done a better job of of uh, somebody who puts one of these books down would understand a lot about the Army of the Potomac. I mean, a lot. Mm-hmm. There, we've learned many things since Catton wrote, but I think most of the basic things that you need to know about the Army of the Potomac, politics, the leadership, attitudes within the ranks, and so forth, I think a lot of those things come through very powerfully and, in a, and, in, and stylistically in such a pleasing way that you just yes. sometimes shake your head and think, I, I wish I could write like that. It, but is there anything I I he gets wrong? L- let me ask this: is, is there anything he gets wrong that, that, as you were going over the scene, and thought, "Well, I I'm, think he gets he, some things wrong." I think he's he he really doesn't like Edwin Stanton, and of course, lots of he's easy not to like. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm not sure he gets Stanton right. I'm he's. I mean, there are there are some things that uh, and he gets some statistics we know some things more about casualties and strengths and so forth now than right. he did mm-hmm. but i don't think he gets really big things wrong and that to me is the real test over time and especially when you're talking about as big a chunk of time as this we're talking about seven, well, it's coming up on 75 years since mr lincoln's army came out and that's a very long time to to say this book is still worth reading actually i mean a secondary study you know, if you think of other people writing in that generation in the 1950s, certainly Bell Wiley is, is still worth reading. Bell uh, Wiley is still worth reading. Uh, I think if you if you make the the needed corrections for his lost cause uh, framework in some ways, Freeman, some of the details and things are still worth reading in Freeman. But mm-hmm. but most of the books from that period don't they. They really seem much more dated. I'll just put it that way: much more dated yeah. to me than Cat and Death. Yeah, and I, that I, and that is and as I, I mentioned in my introduction, it we 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 talked about should we try to change any language whatsoever? And of course, we we didn't in the end. You just have to. Mm-hmm. So he does say colored troops, and he does say Negro troops, and those are the and those are the terms that he uses. That's just take that as a given mm-hmm. and move forward. 
and yeah, certainly there's no malice in his use of those terms. Uh, oh, so. in, in his own life, he was he was very, he was a New Deal Democrat, and on the mm-hmm. spectrum of people in his time, he would have been con- definitely been considered a progressive, no question. Mm-hmm. Well, I I remember personally going on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, northern Minnesota, when I was much younger, uh, and since we're going to be hiking and portaging our canoes, you could take. You had to carry everything uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, I took one book, and the book I took was Stillness at Appomattox, a little paperback oh, copy. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> partly because it was, it was long, and I hadn't read it yet, and it was kind of beat up, and I wasn't that interested in the last year of the war. I was much more interested in the first couple of years. Uh, sure, that's the marquee battles are. <laughs> sure. But I'll tell you, that copy, uh, which still reeks of the smoke of the campfires uh, that it was carried around is, is maybe my um, certainly among my top few uh, prized possessions of as books in part in large part because of the experience and because of Catton's voice reading it uh, amidst all the trees and he read, talks about growing up in Michigan and, and the, the lumber industry uh, he talks a lot about and, the lumber and, and, industry does yes yeah, there's just so many connections. Um, uh, personally, the many I have. have the, I, I've just walked into another room in my house, and I have right in a row seven books by Catton that I bought between when I was 11 and uh, 14. There they are. I still have yeah. them all these it, years later. Uh, and that and, yeah, the, and the, the, the American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War is somewhere. It's right not next to them, but it's so that would be eight. He wrote yeah, a nice that, memoir. One. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, called waiting for the morning train. Um, that that was in the, like the seventies. I was quite late. Yeah, yeah, that was quite late. There's no one. Uh, Stephen Sears, who worked for him when Sears was a young man uh, at American Heritage, he made a point that I think is a very valid point. That in all of the talk about Ken Burns and the film Gettysburg and the other mm-hmm. things that were going on, the reenactors and everything that seemed to give such a boost interest in the Civil War in the late 80s through the mid-90s, Catton right. really set a lot of that up. I mean, Catton has to be thrown yes. into that mix as well. Uh, he, he, more than any other single person, I think, mm-hmm. is responsible for an expanding popular interest in the Civil War uh, in, in the decades after the early 1950s down, down until uh, the 90s with a huge number of people who really cut their teeth on him. And I was struck, I'll just say one more thing here. When I went through, I I got to a lot of places where I came to a phrase making a point that I have made for 30 years as a Mm -hmm. teacher, not even knowing that I was cribbing it from Bruce Catton. (laughs) I had forgotten it, and it was just in my brain somehow, and it was chasing me, and I thought, oh my God. We, we've all done that. I'm being told we are out of time. It happens too soon every week that we run out of time. We've done it again. Listeners, get yourself this Bruce Catton Army of the Potomac trilogy. Uh, you will not regret it, even if you've read it many times before. Uh, you'll like it. Gary, we've got to run. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Thanks for the invitation. Listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.